Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's uh, an episode for your listening enjoyment. If I've Does never that... seen it before, the different exotic Panini skins, whatever, snake skin and tiger yeah. and and uh, elephant and, and uh, zebra. If I see something like that, yes, for a dollar, I'm going to put that in there. But that doesn't happen very often. But has it happened? Yes. So does that create a sustainability for you? Yes. Like, okay, I can do this in perpetuity because... Every yeah. show I come back and I tell my lovely wife, Diane, I say, I cannot believe it. She said, you came back with another couple boxes of cards. What's going on? I said, every time I go, they're going to see me coming and they're going to say, we don't want your business. You're getting too good of a deal. But they're doing the opposite. They're saying, thank you for buying a bunch of cards that nobody else is looking at or that yeah. nobody else wants those. They're in the dollar boxes looking for the Aaron Judges and nothing right. against that. Juan Soto. But they're base cards or they're low-level kinds of things. I don't need that. I've seen those. They're not interesting to me. But I think it's cool how when you come back to Diane with these cards, you're like, but don't worry. They were paid for by the last couple of boxes of cards that I brought home from the last show. She's not complaining. <laughs> yeah, it's more than a break-even. But even if it was a break-even thing, what's so bad about that? I'm having a great time. I'm doing what I want to do, and I can do it in stereo. I can't really carry on an intimate, deep conversation with anybody but I can take a break here and there. So it's working for me. But like I said, every show, I think I'm going to come back empty handed or I'm going to pull out these couple hundred cards and they're going to look through them and say, how did you find these in the dollar box? We cannot sell you those. Not only can you not get a discount, you're going to have to pay a surcharge. Those are all $5 cards and I'm going to charge you two bucks for them. And I'm going to think I just spent an hour looking through this stuff and they're going to hold me up and extort me. It's never happened yet. I saw it happen when somebody did that, but it didn't happen to me. That would be a deal breaker for me, no longer doing business with that person. It's the most uncanny thing. It has nothing to do with who I am. They're happy. I'm buying, in many cases, no-name players. That's one of the keys. Interesting supply and low demand. The low demand guys, who wants those? Nobody's player collecting somebody that I've barely heard of. But then I'll take it home. I'll study up. I'm learning because there's baseball and football, especially basketball, too. They're not never wases, but they're never going to make it. You can tell by their age, their position, whatever, they're not a good bet. And yet at the time their card was issued, they were potential. But now five years later, they're in there and there's very little chance unless the guy goes into announcing or does something, gets a Nobel Prize. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Every time I see you at a show at a dollar box or at a table, I'm like, God, I'm about to interrupt. No, don't think that. Other people don't think that. I want to be interruptible. Now, I don't want to spend two hours. I'd rather just take a break. Like I said, if it's something deeper, I got to just stop. But Rich and I coexist and just kibitz back and forth. But we know each other pretty well. So feel free. Not a problem at all. There's probably a lot of dealers in our hobby today, all the new people, the new blood in the hobby that just don't know who you are. True, yeah. true. Does that happen a lot? Fair enough. My business was to find out what was going on. I mean, it was collectors and dealers, but we wanted to have a balanced two-way street there. But when our guys, including me, were out there, we needed to understand what was going on, the dealer's take on the show, and what was selling for them and all that stuff. But I don't have to do that anymore, Mike, and I haven't had to do that for a long time. And so now, just to be a regular guy, just to be a collector, I don't need to 
do an industry assessment when I walked the show. And it probably got this way toward the end. We had lots of sources, but I had some key sources for the books and the magazines. Guys I knew really well, ultra trustworthy, high integrity, did a lot of volume, and I could really respect they were shooting straight with me. Those people I still see. I go out to dinner with those guys, a lot of them. But it's got to be refreshing to be reasonably anonymous now versus what you were in the hobby when you were running Beckett. So you're saying my disguise is working? Well, you certainly don't look like any of the cards that I have you. So <laughs> you, by design, you've, yeah, uh, yeah. like a fine wine aged very I'm, well. I'm hoping, yeah. But it's nice. When I go to a show, people come up and say hi, and it's great, and I appreciate it. But I have to balance that. I'm trying to look for cards, too. You have a distinctive voice, a different presence from your YouTube fame, whereas I'm just a podcaster. So I don't think people are recognizing my voice, and I've never put myself out there to be the poster boy for the hobby. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. If you were to say this period of the hobby correlates very similarly when do you equate this period to? I think it's unprecedented. I think we have so much big money coming in. They're building the infrastructure for the next wave of growth, Mike. That's really encouraging. And they're looking for a 25% increase in collectors every year. I'd love to see that too. But that doesn't mean we're going to have a 25% increase in the pricing every year. And in the financial markets, nothing marches lockstep like that. So to think we're always going to be in a mixed market and there's always going to be some things going up, some things going down. No one perceives anything to be overvalued usually. That's unpleasant to think that because if I have it, then that's what it's worth. But things can come down and you set that aside. On the other hand, you in particular have figured out, I believe this is a good deal. I believe this is undervalued compared to all these other things. And if people are able to do that math for themselves, just like the stock market, you could say the stock market is overpriced. Okay. Does that mean every stock is overpriced? No. And there's certain sectors that are probably going to do great. And if you can figure out what that is, but people are, they're running in a herd mentality to, okay, we're all going to run over to F1 now. We're going to run over to soccer now. And we're going to run over to graded Sports Illustrated's and ticket stubs. Each one of those things has some merit and they may have their day in the sun, but to get it back to what you and I really believe is that the enduring vintage and vintage baseball probably has been the enduring pace setter for the industry. For decades. For a century, but for decades, yeah. yeah. I, too, agree we are in an unprecedented time. To say it's like the junk wax era is wrong. People think that and gravitate towards that because it was a period of overproduction and low value and values decreasing quickly. The industry itself, the money coming in, the companies being created, the infrastructure being created today to support the sports card hobby is unlike any time we've ever seen. Those people putting all that money in are not going to let it just die on the vine. Fanatics is going to work very hard to promote sports cards. There is Zero question that they are going to do everything they can to grow the sports card market, whether it's marketing, advertising, distribution methods. They're going to come up with every way to grow this hobby. Will they be able to hit a target of 25% growth in the number of collectors? I think they could. But the junk wax era and fanatics have this in common. They expect to eventually get rich off Baseball cards, sports cards, trading cards, okay? Because it wasn't a get-rich-quick thing in the junk wax era. It was setting aside these cases that you're buying seemingly cheap, and you're going to put them away for your retirement and stuff like that. Right. That didn't materialize in the way they thought. Okay, That's not what's happening now. 
Now it's more of a get rich quick thing. There was some flipping going on back in the day, 35 years ago. But now it's, if you put it back, you're hoping to flip it next year. As long as Fanatics doesn't go to this short-term mentality, that's why I hope they don't go public anytime soon, or anybody in the industry goes public anytime soon, then they're going to help build the industry and the infrastructure. And that's a win for all of us. Okay, but The scary part of the whole Fanatics thing is if they only think short-term, they're going to mess it up. let all the air out of the balloon very quickly. If they think long-term, we want to do this, we want to be the juggernaut in this hobby for the next 25 years, then I think the next few years is optimistic. The good thing about Fanatics is that they just want to sell stuff. They want to sell other people's stuff. If they're doing that, then they want to be the place where people go to get sports stuff, whether it's caps or jerseys or cards or memorabilia, they want to be the place synonymous with that. And that has a huge market potential. I'm hoping that Josh Luber, again, if you've got a chief vision officer, you probably ought to listen to him. But hopefully he has the right vision. You can have a chief vision officer with a flawed vision. They have to have a strategy. Here's what we're going to do next to make the pie bigger. I'm more of a Let's just see how the pie grows, and maybe well, it doesn't. Procter & Gamble knows how to make pies grow. They're packaged goods and uh, consumer products and things like that. They know how to market and to make you feel like you really have to have this thing. But we aren't toothpaste. We're not right. shampoo. The Josh Lubers of the world, these uh, vision officers and the people helping to decide, the Nat Turners, they're either going to be passionate collector gene type people or they're going to be packaged goods people. And if they're packaged good people, they're going to try to maximize sales instead of optimizing sales. And optimizing sales means looking at the future and not just this quarter or even this year. But, yeah, you're but, right. Those are very different states of mind to be in. Optimization versus maximization. Very true. But, uh, Great point. You're a public company and you have your annual meeting and you start talking about you're not maximizing shareholder value as determined by the stock price, let's say. They're going to say, we need a new right. leadership. Yeah, you're fired. Yeah. Vintage. Slow and steady from here, status quo from here, over the next two to three years in the vintage market. I'd like it to be slow and steady, and I don't think it can be because in the days of social media and the sensationalism that's occurring now, slow and steady would be boring. Slow and steady would be my preference, but I don't think we can go back to that. In fact, if cards grew 8% this year, then all it did was keep up with inflation. Is that some kind of great investment? So I don't think it's slow and steady. I think it's going to continue to be volatile. I do hope that and believe that it's probably going to be more up than down, but there's going to be some adjustments. The main adjustment, I think, could be not so much in the player hierarchy, but in the relationships between grades and the ultra premium for a 10 or a 9 or an 8 over 7.65 as you go down, it's like a Richter scale. A 7.0 earthquake is 10 times more powerful than a 6.0. It's right. not 16%. It's a whole order of magnitude more. And an 8.0 is another 10 times more than that. It's getting more logarithmic. And I think we could see a compression of that. There already is for the newer cards. But for the older cards, in your buying habits, you <clears throat> represent that thought that a 5 is a great card. And if a five is a fraction of what a nine is, much less a 10, then nine out of 10 people are going to want the five, I think. Yeah, I and think that 10th one is going to be competing with some other ultra wealthy people. And that's perhaps not represented the hobby. So it, you might find 
that when the PSA 10 or the SGC 9.5 Rosenfind 52 mantle, as those things go way, way up, there are limits to how that's going to affect a PSA or a BGS or an SGC 5 mantle or 4 or 3 or 2 because they're different demographics, populations that are going after them. So that would be shocking to the system because card ladder in particular, with their predictive pricing algorithms, if the 10 goes up, then the 9 is going to follow. That has happened almost all the time, but there's no assurance that'll always be the case. There's a limit to what people are going to pay, and we're probably going to find that out. There are no sure things. Buy what you like, and you can't lose. You're a value buyer, an excellent example of someone that has passion and discipline. Rare to see the both. <laughs> Thank you. The wealth gap, so to speak, between the super high-end and the more mainstream cards. There's just more people that can afford them. I think they'll just become more popular because that's the sandbox that most people can play in, quite frankly. So I think that the overall popularity of vintage will grow slow and steady. You use the word boring. I like boring, quite frankly, in terms of my card market, because I still have a lot of stuff I want to get. It's going to take me a long time to do it. The more boring over the next five years, the better, because it allows me to find those values and accumulate cards slowly for my collection. The corollary to what my dollar box strategy is when I'm buying cards that I haven't seen before. If you're a vintage collector, if you're buying what everybody is picturing, everybody is talking about, everybody is showing, everybody is chasing, that's a recipe for paying high prices. Right. If you're going for things that people are not talking about, are not bragging about, then would that be boring? It's not interesting enough that it's making headlines. And so it's either the player or the set or the condition, the act of something being talked about and shown increases the price of something. Just like in the dollar box, I'm looking for things that people are not talking about, that people are not showing. If you want to have what everybody else has, then you're going to be in an expensive auction. Especially Great. if it's in the condition that everybody would ooh-la-la over. I want to ooh-la-la over a, a nice card that I got at a good price. Anybody can overpay if they've got enough money, but it takes a sharp eye as a collector and the passion and discipline to say, this is the card to get. This is the best value to enjoyment and price relationship. I'm excited to have this card in my collection. 